I don't suppose you remember the character Magua from Last of the Mohicans, do you? Magua is played by Wes Studi, a Cherokee-American actor who's been in a bunch of movies. My favorite, actually, is not a huge role, but it's in the movie Heat, where he plays the detective who is the right-hand man of Al Pacino's character in that classic. Magua is this sort of leathery-skinned mohawk uh, both in haircut and I think in tribe, I could be wrong. That might be Apache. So uh, feel free to correct me. He plays that character in Last of the Mohicans, and he's definitely the bad guy. There's no doubt about that in that movie. I don't think there's any sort of like redemption story as a side plot in that movie for Magua. Maybe in uh, a movie today, there probably would be that nuanced portrayal of the bad guy. There was a gunnery sergeant, a gunny. That's uh, the abbreviation in the U.S. Marine Corps for one of the more senior enlisted ranks. And gunnery sergeants are sort of uh, notorious a little bit for the character that they portray in the Marine Corps and the role they play. Not that I was in the Marines, but dealt with a lot of them at the Naval Academy and in my service as a SEAL and, uh, and know a lot of them as well. There was a gunnery sergeant, let's call him Gunny Killington, at the Naval Academy when I was there, when I was a midshipman. And I mentioned this before, there's a period in the summers where your summer is all taken up there's a period in one of the summers that most midshipmen do where you go on a ship for a little bit, you fly planes for a little bit, you go on a submarine for a little bit, you're a Marine for a little bit, you're a SEAL for a little bit. I might be forgetting one or two specialties in the Navy. Gunny Killington was the guy who was primarily in charge of that month or six weeks, however long we did that for. And I remember him letting us know when we first grouped up this hodgepodge of midshipmen. We were, I don't know, maybe in our sophomore year or something like that. So everyone was fresh from plebeer. It's like, imagine a whole bunch of 19-year-olds just getting out of prison ready to do all the things that someone getting out of prison would want to do and hormonally at 19 years old. Plus, everyone's about had it with authority at that point. So it's amazing Gunny Killington just didn't actually murder us all in our sleep, given how we were probably behaving that entire time. I remember him grouping us all up and giving us our introduction to what this period of training would be like. And there were some administrative things to take care of. And I remember him reading off who the, let's say, officers or leadership of that group would be for a period of time. And even though we were all the same rank, some people had to take care of that administrivia and basically make things easier on him. And I remember some surprise and also just some sort of feeling of pride, not that there was any sort of logic to it. I'm sure it was all just 
random. I remember hearing my name read off as the person who would be the executive officer, the XO in Navy terms. My only responsibility from Gunny Killington, literally the only thing I had to do to merit this title of XO was collect all the blood types from my class that was going through this thing. So a couple hundred people probably. Collect all these blood types before a helicopter ride that we were going to take just in case something crashed. And in the unlikely event, any of us survived that crash. If we needed a blood transfusion, that way responsible parties would know what blood we could uh, be infused with. A couple weeks passed. We got to that event. Everyone was feeling pretty salty and experienced by that point, having graduated from plebeer and little more than that. We were on the bus to the helicopter ride, and I happened to be on the same bus as Gunny Killington. And I remember him with about 20 minutes left on the bus, and there's like six buses of people going there. I remember him asking me, so can I get the blood types? And he probably asked it in a much more gravelly tone than that, because that's the kind of guy he was. And wouldn't you know it, I didn't have them. I completely forgot my only responsibility for that four weeks, five weeks. And I had to scramble as soon as we got to the airfield and run around with a little notepad, getting everyone's blood type. It was pretty ridiculous. I was mortified at forgetting this only thing. Although at the end of the day, it's not like anything fell through. No one died. No money was lost. Just my pride. Today, we're going to be talking about the illusions of leadership. Leaders often suffer from these illusions, and they're different between the military and civilian worlds. These distinguishing features can teach us a lot about leadership and maybe ourselves. The first illusion of leadership that people often suffer from, especially in the civilian world, is that you're leading because people don't disagree with you. And of course, no one would agree to that way that I articulated it there. Of course, anyone with any common sense and thinking about it and telling this to someone else would say, yes, disagreement, I welcome that. We'll get the best ideas when people are free to disagree with each other. But I think the reality is that many managers, many leaders in corporate America convince themselves that they're doing a good job leading based upon how much people actually do disagree with them. And if there's comedy in the organization under them and around them, and everyone walks out of meetings sort of holding hands and saying they're going to do something, 
they comfort themselves with the thought that they're actually a good leader. I've talked about debriefs before, especially in the SEAL teams. Debriefs can be extremely divisive and sometimes nasty in the SEAL teams, especially when things go wrong. Of course, the mark of a very high-performing organization, in my opinion, is when maybe an outsider would come in to that debrief and think that things had gone horribly when actually things had gone very well. And the players and coaches just hold themselves to an extremely high bar. In those debriefs, no one is immune to criticism. And the best leaders accept, welcome, and encourage that criticism of what they did, the calls they made, the decisions they made during the operation, and maybe most importantly, the plan for the operation. And then if we go one step higher or earlier, even more importantly than that, whether you should have gone on the mission at all, whether that was the right goal at all. Of course, there are some things that lend themselves more to that analysis than others. It's much easier with a sporting event or a SEAL operation to analyze that event in isolation and figure out if you should have gone on that operation, if you should have achieved that mission in the beginning, whereas corporate plans might be two years, three years plus lots of capital investment. You don't get that iterative approach to what was the mission to begin with, which is unfortunate. But I digress. I once had a senior enlisted guy really take me aside after a period of mobility training. So that's driving Humvees in the mountains of the Southwest of the United States. It's very rocky, resembles Afghan terrain in places. And that's why it was chosen. I was micromanaging the tactics of my people. And even though if I had taken a step back, I would know that I shouldn't be doing that. And I thought I was helping other people see things that I could see and was just being a proactive communicator. Even if that was true, maybe for another person on the team, for me to do that as the leader, it was intrusive and was eroding everyone else's autonomy. But the point here is that this senior enlisted, my brother, my right-hand man, took me aside and, you know, said it in a somewhat <laughs> tactful manner, but not really. It was very to the point of like, hey, you got you to gotta take a step back here. Rarely does that kind of real talk happen in the private sector, and it should. High-performing teams will take aside their leader, not a whole team, hopefully, although I've been a part of an intervention uh, for a leader at a certain private company at some point. <laughs> That's, that shouldn't be the norm. You should take people aside one-on-one, but then hopefully trust that they will accept that feedback in a way that is not biased against you. And that'll be the title of a, a future episode. Trust is a one-way street. Too often, leaders aren't getting that feedback they need, though. 
attrition can be a lagging indicator of a poor leadership situation and a leading indicator of worse things to come. But often when there is attrition in a team, leaders, those who are causing the attrition and maybe don't know it, maybe are afraid to admit it, as well as other folks often aren't clued in to the problem and the attrition is just dismissed away. Oh, Bob was here for two years anyway. He was up for rotation. Oh, Judy. Yeah, she didn't really fit in here. Oh, Sally. Yeah, she didn't really have the skill sets to succeed. Oh, Mike. Yeah, he was going to this other company because it just, he was really title focused and that's why he left to go to that position. It becomes surprisingly easy to rationalize these things, even though my examples sound outright ridiculous when you hear them on a podcast. You better believe in the military, if you were the cause of attrition, people would let you know in no uncertain terms. And they would let your superiors know. Now, granted, there isn't as much freedom of movement of personnel between jobs in the military, of course, but the same kinds of things that cause attrition in the private sector cause people to have very poor quality and enjoyment and fulfillment of their work in the military. And if people are experiencing those things, everyone knows about it. And their leaders are usually swift to take action. I saw people get fired from positions in the military fairly regularly, actually probably more often than I've ever seen in the private sector. I would go so far as to say that even if the people reporting on the poor leadership of someone were new to a command or maybe very junior, that they would be trusted as much as anyone else. Whereas in the private sector, if you haven't been around a while, if you're not senior, people don't really value that input on the quality of leadership. But everyone in the military has a baseline of trust and as a baseline of what leadership should be, that, that shared understanding. Meanwhile, God forbid, if you weren't good at achieving the mission or if you had lost lives because of poor decisions, you better believe you'd hear about it. But in the private sector, incompetence at leadership is often met with a shrug, if even noticed at all. Mrs. Cairo wasn't Egyptian. She wasn't even tan at all. She was white, pasty white at that, elderly, had white hair. She wasn't very nice. She was your stereotypical worst teacher for a boy in fifth grade. For some reason, I was obsessed with 
government, politics, and leadership from an early age. I loved the idea of student government. And so in the fifth grade, I decided that our school should have a student government. And there was just one fifth grade class. It was a fairly small private school. I organized an election in the library one day and voila, as if I was some sort of dictator, I became president in my own election. Granted, I didn't rig anything. I not sure I really deserved it. I don't know what I possibly could have campaigned on. The whole thing is ridiculous in retrospect. And Mrs. Cairo put an end to my presidency within four hours. As soon as she found out about it, she <laughs> was none too happy. Uh, in fact, she was, she was really angry, like angrier than you would expect. I feel like some people would be like, oh, like, that's great. You guys organized something, took some initiative. But she was really offended by uh, my apparent grasping for power at that age. But even if my presidency had lasted four years through the end of eighth grade, what would it have meant? What does a student government president in high school mean? What does something like that in college really mean? What do titles mean at all? Of course, if you're a CEO, that means something. There's some legal responsibilities that you have. There are some entitlements and control that you have in Western corporate law. There's some respect that engenders. But if you're in a startup of five people, what does CEO really mean? And then what do all the other titles mean? Director, manager, VP, associate. These are just words. In the military, those ranks do mean something. There's a certain level of respect that's afforded by those above and below you at certain ranks. But the rubber has to meet the road at some point. Things do get real in the military. It's not all pomp and circumstance for those of you who have never been in the service. What those in the military realize is that your title doesn't mean anything with respect to your leadership ability. The second illusion of leadership is that you're leading because you have a certain title or because you get promoted. Getting promoted doesn't mean shit when it comes to leadership. Promotions in almost every organization do not happen because those below you, like pirates, elected you to be their leader. Now, there might be 360-degree feedback, things like that, but you cannot console yourself with your leadership quality based upon promotions, just like you can't base your leadership quality on your title. I was class leader in my bud's class, basic SEAL training. I got there after a couple of people quit, and I had a rocky start before Hell Week in terms of my leadership at Bud's. But 
eventually the proof was in the pudding of reports that I would get back on the quality of my leadership through instructors, classmates, and more. I'm sure I was by no means perfect. And there was a lot that we all can improve in leadership. But because, not patting myself on the back, but because I had a very high bar for what my leadership should be, I didn't settle for the fact that I was class leader alone. More than that, I had a point of view for how we should go about things, what processes we should follow, how to develop the officers and enlisted folks who I was going through training with. I mean, in the limited capacity that I could. I mean, we're, we're all just basically trying to survive through training, more or less. But things could be easier or they can be a lot harder. And classes with poor leadership or who do dumb things have it a lot harder than those who do things in a way that makes sense in military terms. Last point on this note. I saw a Medium article the other day quoting a study that most middle managers add no value and can't describe effectively what their job is. Apologize for being a little sparse on the details there that support that. And I think for anyone who's worked in a corporation, you'll immediately say, yes, of course that's true. But I found it interesting that a study actually sort of backs up the nebulousness of what middle management is and what the job descriptions leadership-wise of those middle managers are. Related to that story about myself in fifth grade is the illusion that you're leading because people like you. I don't think I rigged the election. So I think there was a reservoir of affinity of my classmates to me as a friend and classmate. And maybe there were other reasons that they voted for me, but that didn't mean anything either, right? There are leaders who are very likable people, but still terrible leaders. We all know the tempting refrain when it comes to a leader at work or a person that we might consider voting for for president. The test of, oh, would I want to have a beer with that guy? Or one day, would I want to have a beer with her as president? That's something that attributes some normalcy to that person. And I, I, I agree with that. Abnormal people, people who can't relate to others, usually, in my opinion, make terrible leaders, despite how well they did on a certain standardized test at some point or whatever fancy degree they have or other supposed credentials. But <laughs> wanting to have a beer with someone alone does not make them a good leader. Where does power flow from? Skill or destiny or divine right? Have you ever gone out of your way to compare the protein and sugar in certain items? Is it difficult getting takeout because you're concerned you're not going to get enough protein 
or that your macros are somehow going to be off. Now, not all of you are fitness nuts, but I think everyone can relate to scouring the earth for what you need to consume to achieve your goal. Sometimes I feel like a protein whore. Like I can't get enough. No matter what restaurant I go to, no matter where I get takeout, the only way I can do that is if I'm at home and I've got eight chicken thighs and three cans of sardines and maybe a couple cheese sticks to supplement the whole thing. Oh, and that's besides my micellar casein protein. I ended up turning this concept into my first fictional story, which I posted on Medium just the other day. And you might say, Shri, this is a podcast. Why are you mentioning this? Well, because I would love to share this kind of content with you. So if you want to find out about how people in the future will scour their own world for any kind of protein and where we'll head as a society beyond synthetic meat, then sign up for that kind of tribal knowledge on my email list at thewarriorpoet.com. That's thewarriorpoet.com. I will not spam you. Just tips and tricks. Get it first and fast at thewarriorpoet.com. There was an instructor in Bud's first phase, the hardest phase of Bud's, who used to say, hop, sing, and do it. And he'd say it in this kind of eerie cheerful sing-songy voice, which there's a lot of gallows humor in military situations, including Bud's, and I never forgot the way he would say that. I'm sure lots of managers in the private sector would just like people to hop, sing, and do it. And maybe when you are employing highly motivated people, maybe they are doing that hopping, singing, and doing whatever random task you're asking them to do. But that would be to fall prey to illusion number four, that you're leading, that you're a good leader because people do what you say. People do what others say for numerous reasons. Safety, security, maybe they're afraid of risk, they are getting a paycheck, and 70% plus of America is living paycheck to paycheck. So there's some fear there. Maybe they're a people pleaser by personality. Maybe they feel too inexperienced to challenge those commands or requests. On a naval warship, people do what the captain says all the time. And captains on warships have special command aura and responsibilities and authority that no one else on that ship has. But like these other illusions, the fact that other people do what that captain says by no means makes them a good leader. Are they inspiring people? Are they getting the best out of their organization? Are they making good decisions? Are they coming up with a vision and articulating it? The answer in the Navy is very often no. 
just like in the corporate sector. Meanwhile, there's an important corollary to bring up here. People do what you say, you have a certain title. There can be illusions up or down the chain of command or whatever hierarchy or organizational structure you have. There's almost invariably some sort of levels or structure of authority. And when there isn't an explicit one, there is always an implicit hierarchy of authority. You might have someone who's a very charismatic leader, let's say, as your VP of sales. And junior sales associates may think that person is amazing as a leader because of their rousing speeches, the vision that they articulate, where they want to go. However, the people in between those junior sales associates and that VP of sales may know that the guy is extremely unethical, doesn't have any unique point of view on anything, and just parrots what the CEO says, and on and on and on. So that person may not be a good leader, but those illusions that skip levels over those who can really appreciate whether someone is a good leader or not. People began to think he had some kind of special power, or at least that he was a bit different. The last illusion of leadership is that you are a good leader because the organization achieves a certain outcome. I won't belabor this one. It's similar in my head to the illusion where you think you're a good leader because you get a promotion. Organizational outcomes derive from a number of factors, only one of which is leadership, especially in a complex organization with lots of people and lots of moving parts. One middle manager likely isn't responsible for the outcome. Okay, so I'll run through these illusions of leadership one final time. Number one, that you're a good leader because people don't disagree with you. Number two, that you're a good leader because people like you. Number three, that you're leading because you got promoted or have a certain title. Number four, that you're leading because people do what you say. And number five, that you are a good leader because the organization achieves a certain outcome. Meanwhile, I would love to see a model in the private sector that replicates what senior enlisted service members do for officers in the military. Well, senior enlisted folks and junior enlisted folks exercise amazing leadership every single day, day in and day out throughout the military. They don't have this sort of dual band that is the relationship between senior enlisted folks and junior officers, where there's a mentorship of the junior officer by the person who is technically junior to them. Of course, that can happen in all sorts of sort of leadership scenarios, private sector or military. But in the military, it's very explicitly acknowledged that senior enlisted folks have that mentorship role. And 
that results in a few things. One is that junior leaders can get very, very candid advice about what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong and tips to succeed. Even though many of them have gone to school for four years to learn specifically more than anything else how to be a leader, you still need that quick feedback when you're doing things in a practical sense, especially for the first time, that first few months, first year, and more. The second thing that the senior enlisted track, as I'll call it here, provides the organization is a separate line of information. I don't want to paint it negatively, so pardon the analogy, but it's almost like in the Russian war movies, the Soviet Union in the Cold War had KGB agents interspersed throughout the military and other parts of the government to where there were two lines of information, information being that lifeblood of the organization, as we've highlighted last few episodes, two separate sources of information for leadership so they can make decisions and have transparency about what's going on. Senior enlisted folks will communicate amongst each other and eventually that information, the most crucial information and especially the most damning information about poor leaders will make its way to the top, to that senior officer who will actually take action. And invariably, senior officers very much value that feedback that's coming from the senior enlisted community. So I'm not sure how to replicate this exactly in a much less formal, less rank conscious environment. And I'm not saying that we should all wear insignia or be super title conscious, salute each other in the workplace and the private sector. But there's got to be some way to replicate that mentorship and that separate line of information so that ultimately organizations can have far better leaders than they have today. And here we go. Let's get all the way wet. Footnote number one. Many of those fills you heard were from the movie The Illusionist 2006. The Illusionist is a pretty good movie. There's a guy in there who, for some reason, every time I see him in certain roles from that period, reminds me of Jude Law, actually. Like if Jude Law put on a mustache and, you know, a white Austro-Hungarian military uniform, I think that he could pass for the same guy. And when I Googled this, Rufus Sewell versus Jude Law... I fell down a rabbit hole of pictures comparing the two and people pointing to apparently a terrible movie called The Holiday, which stars Kate Winslet, Cameron Diaz, Rufus Sewell, and Jude Law in the same movie. I saw some article posting, what kind of moron cast Jude Law and Rufus Sewell in the same movie? because apparently they're easily confused between someone's boyfriend and also her brother. They're 
hair is even styled the same way. Apparently, I, ironically, Jack Black is in that movie. And if you see the cover for the movie, The Holiday, Jack Black is very non-Jack Blackish on the cover. He's looking just sort of like a little bit aw shucksish and romantic, uh, chuckling in this ensemble rom-com for the holidays. It's uh, a little jarring, and uh, I'm glad Jack Black hasn't made too many of those movies. I will say that my Instagram for my personal life, Shree, actually is derived from the title of another heartwarming holiday ensemble classic, Love Actually. Last note on Rufus Sewell. He, first of all, is great in Man in the High Castle. Just really, really great. I was surprised, though, to learn that yet he is another British actor who does an amazing American accent. If only it worked the other way around. Footnote number two. The Illusionist came out in 2006, but some of you will remember that The Prestige also came out in 2006. It was almost like they could have been shot on the same set in parts with the stage, the smoky, hazy atmosphere at time. Of course, the emphasis on magic. I think I've got to go with The Prestige being the much better movie, even though The Illusionist is still great. Prestige is with Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman, and Michael Caine along with, I believe, Scarlett Johansson is in that one. It's just amazing. But that's like an A++ movie. The Illusionist, meanwhile, has Edward Norton. And, as we referred to from the episode of this podcast in Vino Veritas a couple episodes ago, Paul Giamatti is in The Illusionist. It's uh, much more of a romance film in a period piece. Whereas The Prestige is much more of a suspense movie with all these other things uh, wrapped in, the, the period, the romance and everything. So check them both out. Let me know what you think. Is it important? You didn't, it's movie magic. They could have just done trade. Did you feel you needed to get into the role and learn how to be a magician? Yeah, of course. I mean, you, if you read the script, like there was no way you could read it and, and not know that one of the big challenges was going to be putting these performances over. I mean, it was pretty central to the, to the story. And I thought, with everything else, I thought, I thought that would be the biggest challenge, is, is doing these stage presentations in a way that feels really convincing and hypnotic. And finally, that's a clip of Edward Norton talking about his performance of the movie magic in the movie Illusionist as being a huge challenge. He talks about that being still so key to the performance, the performance of his on-stage magic on screen being key to his overall performance and the selling of what he and the producers were trying to deliver through that movie. Leadership can also be seen as performance. It should be genuine, but often I know in my life as a leader, I do feel there's a performance quality to it. 
Meanwhile, I have a mantra in a non-leadership setting, just going to the coffee shop, dealing with folks I don't know. The mantra is, bring the magic. I got this from a guest on the Tim Ferriss show. I'll include his name in the show notes. It was a great interview that Tim Ferriss did with him and a few other people. And this person was saying that they expect magic in their daily life. That's one of their rules. I took it one step further. I'm not just going to expect them to make the scenario, the situation magical. I'm going to bring that to them. As leaders, we have the chance to get the best out of people, often better than they expect themselves, and where the output of the organization is greater than the sum of its parts. And if you are being honest with your people and are being effective as a leader, and if they're being honest with you, that's not an illusion. That's magic. If you like the warrior poet there's more great content on instagram follow shri the warrior poet on instagram that's s-r-i the warrior poet you can also get to know me on a personal level by following shri actually on instagram as well the warrior poet is produced by laddie with special contributions by spoonman and me shri
No, 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 no. Kevin, me and the door. Spita.